All right, good morning, you be free. Morning, morning, morning. My name is Eddie Park, pastor of teaching and discipleship. And the craziest thing happened to me this week. I almost got scammed. I got a voicemail Tuesday morning in that robotic voice. This is the IRS. We are filing a lawsuit against Mr. Edward Park. Please respond or you will go to jail, right? You got one of those. So uh, this is the first time this has ever happened to me, all right? I actually called back. I know, I know. I'm young. I'm a millennial. Yeah, I mess up. Okay, I called back. I, you know, who picks up the phone is Mr. IRS officer. This is Mr. I, I, you know, IRS officer, badge number 2282, right? They have this whole script, and they said, uh, Mr. Park, it seems that you've been audited in the past five years your income statements have uh, showed significantly less than your current year. Yeah, no kidding. I worked at a Korean church before this. It makes sense. All right. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, it's possible. How much do I owe? You know, it's like, uh, it's about three, $3,241. I was like, uh, that's just low enough to be true, maybe. And so I'm like, okay, like, would you like to settle it inside court or out of court? And I'm like, Okay, out of court. I don't want to get a lawyer. Like, yeah, you, you know, can you pay the amount today? I was like, well, if I find, find out it's my accountant's fault, will I get it back? He's like, yes, of course. I'm like, I'm going to kill my accountant, right? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, can I pay it by, by credit card over the phone? He's like, no, you cannot. This is where I should have, some of the alarm bells should have rang, right? No, you have to send it electronic transfer fund at your local pharmacy, <laughs> You would, think, you would think I would know by then, but I'm, this is how great the script is, the rhetoric. It's, I'm in panic. I've never had this happen to me before. I can't believe the IRS is calling me, right? I actually get into my car and drive to Target. <laughs> and so the IRS officer is like, you have to stay on the phone with me. But luckily for me, Verizon Wireless in Fullerton sucks because the, the call dropped. <laughs> the call dropped. Yeah. Verizon. <laughs> but in this case, thanks, Verizon. Uh, so I get a call back from a number. I'm not even knowing that the call dropped. And it, the, my phone says Peru. <laughs> so he calls back, and it's, it's the guy. I say, oh, sir, you know, the call dropped. It's me again. Please tell me when you get to the parking lot of the Target that you're going. And so I'm in Amherst Heights, Target. I literally went there Tuesday at like 1130 a.m. And I'm sitting there like, okay, I'm here. What do I do? And this is when I figured it out. This is when this highly educated Stanford business school mind figured it out. I got him. He said, please go to the gift card rack and deposit the money onto the gift card rack and tell me the, the serial number. I'm like, no, 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 no. Wait a second here. Why? I cannot imagine that the U.S. government, the IRS, will tell me to drive to my local pharmacy store, get a gift card, and pay it, and then send it. That just doesn't make any sense. And he gets all defensive. And he says, and then I get, him, I get him agitated enough. I get him mad enough where he starts losing his accent. His perfect English accent becomes, so I go to church every Sunday. I go to church every Sunday, and I would not lie to you. I'm IRS. I'm like, oh, what happened to your English, buddy? What happened there? 
He gets so mad, and we're just, I'm not, and I'm being, trying to be polite. I'm like, hey, I just don't know if you're IRS. Eventually, he hangs up the phone, and I'm like, this is a scam. So I drive back to the office here on Tuesday. I'm running up and down the halls, right? I'm like, Sherry, right? Dan, I just got almost scammed. And, the, and Dan's like, oh, Eddie, oh, Eddie, you picked up the phone. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't, why do people do that? I felt violated. I felt lied to. And I'm just like, why do people do this? Why do people, why don't they just get a normal job? Why do they feel like they have to make a living off of scamming and lying to people? Well, why do you think? Because it works. <laughs> because you get away with it. And then I started thinking, you know, we're, we humans, we're really good at getting away with a lot of things. We're really good at finding a loophole, covering up our tracks. There's a pill for everything nowadays, right, to fix anything. You don't study for an exam, you can take a pill. The, Gives you super energy to concentrate. You make the mistake of eating too much refined sugars and carbohydrates and ice creams and cookies, and you don't have to care about diabetes because there's a pill for that. And if I make the mistake of having an unwanted pregnancy, well, yeah, there's a pill for that too. What happens when we try to find a quick fix, a pill, for some of our mistakes? What happens when we do that when we lie to or hurt the people that we love? We try to do a quick fix and just say sorry to get them to shut up. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just can you stop? Can, you just, can we just end the argument? I'm sorry. What happens when we try to find a quick fix we make the mistake, and we got too violent. Hey, honey, I'm, I'm sorry about last night. Um, I was just really angry, and I was really drunk, and here's, here's, a, here's a bouquet of roses. We fail to see the cost of our mistakes when we do that. So how should we view our mistakes? Well, we're going to be looking at a character in Scripture who try to find a quick fix for his mistakes. And he learned from it. And it led him to greater worship. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Now two weeks ago, Dr. Barry Corey led us to the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a book about God's loving kindness. And his loving kindness onto Ruth allowed Ruth to bear a son. And that son's name was Obed. And Obed was father to a man named Jesse. And Jesse was a father to a man named David. That's who we're going to be looking at today, the life of David. Now, when you think of David, what's probably the most famous story about David that we know? David and Goliath, right? The small, scrawny, bright-eyed shepherd boy comes out to the battlefield without any armor, without a sword, but only what? A slingshot and five stones. He doesn't even use all the stones. And he swings his slingshot and defeats the Philistine giant, Goliath. And he shows the entire world, the nations, that the God of Israel is the stronger God. Far supreme above any other God. And then David becomes the second king of Israel because the scripture says that he was a man after God's own 
heart. He loved God. He loved God so much. And because of that, he was chosen as the king of Israel. But then his life takes a major turn, a major pivot. And probably what we know is the second most famous story of David, the story of David and Bathsheba. You know, when I was a kid growing up at Sunday school, my children's pastor taught me a way to really remember the name Bathsheba. He would say, David watched her take a bath. She bad. <laughs> you can use that one for your grandkids or your children. Every time, it's like, who was the wife of Uriah? She, Bathsheba. I always knew. So, uh, yeah, so David, his, his life takes a major turn. He commits adultery with Uriah's wife. A lot of times we, we forget that Bathsheba is the wife of a man named Uriah. And then he makes a mistake. He makes a mistake of impregnating her while Uriah is out to battle. And then what does he do? David, the king of Israel, the man who is after God's own heart, he tries to find a quick fix. He tries to hide it. He tries to cover it up. He tries to bring Uriah back from battle so that he can sleep with his wife so that the pregnancy would seem like it's Uriah's child. But what does Uriah do? Faithful, loyal army men, Uriah says, how can I abandon the men when there's a war going on? And so Uriah does not come back. David, he's hosed. But then it doesn't end there. David says, well, then I will bring Uriah to the front of the line, in the front line of the war so that he will be killed. And he murders Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, to cover up his tracks. And then he thinks he gets away with it, right? In the story, he thinks he's, no one knows. And then the prophet, Nathan, in his very famous words, he says to David, you are that man, David. And then we see David's family downward spiral out of control. David's son rapes his daughter. David's son kills his other son. David's son tries to come after him and kill him for the throne. His life, his family spirals out of control because he tried to fix it. He tried to cover it, his mistakes. He did not know the gravity of what he did. Well, fast forward. We're going to look at a story. It's actually my favorite story of David, but it's quite unpopular, a little, a little less well-known. It's the story of David and the senses. It's at the, and it's the very last episode in Samuel's account of the king of Israel. So chapter 24, the very last chapter of 2 Samuel, we're going to be reading how David makes a mistake, but unlike the way that he handled his mistake with Bathsheba, he views his mistake differently. He goes about his mistake differently. And in the end, he gives greater worship, a worship that God deserves. So let's read together chapter 24. Will you read with me verse 1? Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Man, if I had a dollar bill every time I read that in the Bible. He incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. So that's strange. So the king... David said to Joab, his commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. Now, there's no tension. We have no idea. This can't be. This is, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the census? Every political figure wants to know how big his army is. 
Every political figure wants to know his population, the demographic of his district. What's wrong? How do we know that he made a mistake? Well, we don't really know. In, but we read the narrative in this way. There's a contrast, verse 3. But, that contrasting vav, that but. But Joab said to the king, hey, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. Why does my lord the king delight in such a thing? So we can tell from the reading of the story, the reading of the scripture, that even Joab, the commander of his army, thinks this is weird. This is, this is strange. There's, not something, there's something not right here about the story. We still don't know why, but we, we can feel in the story there's conflict, there's tension. And again, we see, but... In verse 4, but the king's word prevailed against Joab. Now, we don't really see often David, King David, going against Joab. Joab won him a lot of wars and a lot of battles. And he says this word to dominate, to go against his commanding officer, Joab. Not his commanding officer, the commander of his army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And so Joab goes and takes all the men and the, all the army commanders and they, they number them. And they go back to the king and say, hey, there's 800,000 in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. Now this is how we know in this point in the narrative that David made a big boo-boo. He made a mistake. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Right after, he knew. He was aware. Right after he heard that number, he knew. It struck him. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, there's many, many speculations, many theories on what and why what David did in numbering the census was a mistake. Some people have theories on it, it, it was David's pride. He wanted to show force against his enemy that he had this number. And God was offended because God knew that no matter even if you had 30 men, David, I will win the war for you. People have other theories. Other rabbis have different theories on uh, he wasn't supposed to number the amount of Israelites to the Judites. And, and, and he wasn't supposed to show that. But... You know, in my personal reading, I, don't, I think it's purposely ambiguous. It's, it's meant for us to not know. It's actually not the point of why he makes the mistake, but what he does after, how he views his mistake. And we see that he's aware of it. He knows that he did something wrong. So the prophet Gad, at the time, goes to David and he says, David, you messed up. You have three choices. Three years of famine, three months, you'll be chased by your enemies, or three days, God will bring plague and pestilence to the people of Israel. What would you pick? Three years, three months, or three days? I empathize with David because he picks the three days. And he says, I don't want, to be, I don't want my people to be delivered by the hands of man, but of God. So he picks the pestilence. 
And then God brings the plague. 70,000 of his men fall. And what does David do? He reacts this way in verse 17. I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. He takes responsibility for what he had done. This king of Israel. And so Gad, on that day, went to David and said to him, Okay, the Lord has heard you. Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So they go. They go to the Jebusite to build an altar of worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And, and Arana, the Jebusite, sees the king coming, and he's like, oh, my gosh, the king's coming. Oh, my gosh. And then he's, he's, he's like clearing out the threshing floor, and he, and, he's, and, he, and, he, and he sees David come to him, and he says, let the Lord, the king, take whatever he wishes. You're the king of Israel. And offer it up. Here, I'll give you the, I'll give you the oxen and the burnt offering. Here's, here's the sledges. Here's, here's everything you need, the yoke, the wood to burn. You won't have to pay anything. It's on the house. It's on the house. Wow, it's a pretty sweet deal. Your majesty, Arana, gives all this to the king. And he says, may the Lord God accept you. But what does David say? Some of the last words of King David in the narrative of Samuel. He says, no. But I will surely buy it for you, from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. See, I love this story. I love this narrative because this time, instead of David being unaware of his mistakes, he was immediately struck and he knew. He wasn't blind to it. Instead of trying to hide and fix his mistakes and try to find a quick fix or a pill, he owns it. He takes responsibility for it. He's like, let the pestilence fall on me. Let the judgment fall on me and my family. I did wrong. He takes responsibility. This time, he doesn't belittle his mistake. When he's entitled as a king of Israel to take whatever he's wanted, he knew that he took a wife, he took another man's wife, even though he's entitled to it as the king, he could do whatever he wants. He knew he didn't belittle his mistake. He said, no, I know the cost of what I've done, the gravity of what I've done now. We see a different man. We see a different David. And I always think, why does, why does Samuel end the entire story of one of the greatest rulers of Israel this way? Why is this the last narrative? Well, David, not only meant to rule and govern the people of God, David as the king of Israel was meant to embody what Israel and the people of God are meant to believe, the, men, the way that they were meant to view God, the way that they're meant to view 
each other, the way that they're meant to view themselves, and the way that they're meant to view their mistakes. See, chronologically, this is not the end of David's life. Actually, after this point, some of the most beautiful, deep, emotional, profound psalms and songs were written by David after this point because of the amount of wisdom he knew and learned that he knew the weight, he knew the cost of his mistakes, and he knew that there needs to be payment for his mistakes. Let me give you an example. Let's take a married couple, mid-40s, they're in their second marriage, each, both uh, each other, it's, it's their second marriage, and the husband has a severe gambling problem. He's a sports better. That's his drug of choice. He loves football and boxing. And he's been doing some small bets here and there, but he decides to just make a, a bigger bet. So he, he bets $10,000 on Manny Pacquiao. <laughs> Wasn't a good bet. He loses it. Well, it's just, it's just small enough where he thinks he can make it back. So he does, but then he goes again, and he makes another bet. This time, he borrows 10000 from his bookie, or the sports betting, to margin his bet, so he bets 20000 He loses that. You would think at this point, this man, this husband, would know the cost of what he's doing, his mistakes. But no. His daughter needs braces. His oldest son is about to go to college. And they need to make the mortgage. His wife doesn't know, so he says, hey, honey, what do you, what do you think about, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about starting a business venture with a buddy of mine. What are your thoughts if I take a loan against the house? She's like, how much? I'm, like, I'm not that much. It's like $50,000. Start this business. He goes and bets it. He loses it. Now this husband is in the hole close to eighty. That's a really big hole. So he finally gets some sense and he and he looks for looks for someone to help him out. But he's like, well, I can't I can't go to my mom. She doesn't have a lot of money. I can't go to my in-laws because that my wife doesn't know. So they wouldn't, you know, my wife would find out. But but he has he has an estranged relationship with his father. So he decides to call his father up. He's like, hey, dad. Whoa. Long time, son. How are you? Not so good. I, I, I messed up pretty bad. I messed up pretty bad. I, I gambled away close to $100,000. And my daughter needs braces. And my son, he's, he's going to college. And, and we, need to make, we need to make the mortgage. We're behind on it. Can, can, you, can you help me out? And his father says, well, son, I don't have a lot of money. And I'm about two years away from retiring, but I guess I could break my 401k. If I break my 401k after taxes, it's going to be about $75,000. Would, would that be enough? Wow. Would, would you do that? Sure. Now, this is a fictitious story, but can you imagine his estranged father who has 
every right to say no to his son, who he doesn't have a relationship with. But he breaks his 401k, two years away from retirement, and gives him $75,000 to help him out with the debt that he lost, that he, he made a mistake on. I would hope that this husband would understand that there is actual a physical cost to his mistake, to what he has done. And he realizes that when there is payment, when there is a transaction. See, King David, he embodies, he's teaching the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, that our mistakes against God and one another have a cost. And for every cost, there needs to be payment. Therefore, he does not take the threshing floor for free. He says, no, I will buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer something to the Lord that costs me nothing. If you turn to Matthew, there's a, another story about a king of Israel, the king that is promised, the king that is chosen. And there's a very strange story in the Jesus tradition that people don't know how to understand or interpret. In Matthew 17, the temple tax collector goes to Peter, his disciple, and says, your teacher, Jesus, he pays double the drachma tax, doesn't he? Now, the drachma tax is referencing to a law in Exodus 30 where every Jewish man would pay a tax to the temple annually. And Peter's like, yeah, you know, I see Jesus. He pays that. He pays that a lot every year when I'm with him. And then he goes into the house, and Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tolls and taxes? From his sons or from foreigners or people that he conquers and Jesus and then Peter says well why would a king tax his own sons they'd probably be the foreigners and so Jesus says then the sons are free they don't need to pay anything correct and Peter says yes and then and then Jesus tells them go to go to the lake cast your first line and there's gonna be a fish the first fish that you catch will have a coin of four drachma value, which means it can be enough to pay for two men. He says, grab that coin and pay the tax for you and for me. Now, there's a lot of confusion in that story because why does Jesus, he just says, he's saying something about himself. I don't need to pay the tax, but I'm going to pay it for you and for me. Now, a lot of scholars think that this is about money that he's talking about his identity as the Son of God, which is all true. But Matthew, thank God for Matthew in his editing, in his way, the way that he tells a story and he places it right before this story. He places two lines where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And people are greatly distressed. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. And they became greatly distressed. And then is this story 
about the temple tax where Jesus says, I don't need to pay the temple tax because kings don't tax their own sons, but I'm going to pay it for you, and I'm going to pay it for me. See, like David, this king shows that mistakes have a price, has a cost. Like David, when we see the cost of our mistakes, we see that there needs to be payment. But the difference is the greater David, Jesus Christ, he gives not only, not only does he pay that price, but he pays it with himself as life. When we see the cost of our mistakes, we see the value, we see the worth of his payment. And you know what? When we see the worth of his payment, we can give God the worship that he deserves. We're going to be going into a time of communion this morning. And I pray, I pray that as we do it, we don't do it as another intellectual or religious exercise where we just eat the cracker and take a shot of the juice. But it's a time to reflect on the weight of what we have done, our mistakes. And we're numb to that because we've, we've, we've been so good at hiding them. We've good, been so good at denying them. We've been so good at fixing them, covering them up, saying that they're not a big deal. But we, can we take the Lord's table? Can we take that bread? Can we take the cup and know the cost of what we do? But the good news is, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid the cost of your mistakes, my mistakes, our mistakes in this room. And because of that, because of what we experience together, because of what we know and reflect, and we see the worth of his payment, we're able to worship him so much greater. We can worship him the way that he truly deserves, not trite, not apathetic, with vigor, vitality, with joy. You know, some of the greatest, most beautiful and powerful times of worship is when we sing that song, Jesus Paid It All. We sing that song a lot here, right? And it's the most powerful when we get to that part where, where it gets to the bridge and it builds up Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. When we see the worth of his payment and know the cost of our mistakes, somehow we worship him. We can give him worship, the worship that he truly deserves when we know truly what he has done. So I pray today as we take communion and worship together that worship will be so sweet and so great and so powerful.
I normally close with a prayer, but instead I would love to sing just voices only, that bridge. Oh, praise the one. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead.